How does a human being assemble himself into patterns we would call alive? This act of making one holy is a human being turned into the congregation of God, in whom is the assembly of the twelve attributes of God into one body. This is the unity of body and spirit, the bread and wine, turned into a congregation, a place made holy. Many people incorrectly think of a church as a building for religious services. This kind of church is a new invention by men, as there is no scriptural basis for it. Have you ever wondered if the God you pray to is real? Can science back up your beliefs about this God? Will the great philosophers of our time laugh at you when you describe God? Will the God you look up to survive the scrutiny of theology? which is God logic. The search for who we are. I cannot remember a time when I did not have a difficult relationship with God. I have a strong feeling that he felt the same about me. We loved intensely and hated each other with passion when we did not act as expected. In time, when the love became cold, there was indifference all around. In 2004, questions about God's real usefulness confronted me again during the long Easter weekend. Easter runs from Thursday to Tuesday the following week. I was loitering about at home the Thursday afternoon when one of my children, Monday, convinced me that we needed cake. We drove to the store where I wandered aimlessly while Monday was picking up the cake and a few other items. As I walked around the store, I noticed a man dressed in protective work clothes, apparently trying to decide whether to buy a chicken or maize rice for porridge. As I watched, I realized that the man and his family were facing a bleak Easter weekend ruled by hunger. Now there I was buying cake. Let them eat cake. Mary Antoinette's words echoed through my mind. Being here and buying cake, I was showing my own poor understanding of the plight of many people in the world. Given a heart to act, I threw a few food items into two bags, hoping to finish before the men left the store. After giving the bags to Monday to give to the men, because I could not find the courage to do it myself completely without breaking down, we went home. I spent the weekend occupied with thoughts of what many of my fellow humans had to cope with. Later that year, 2004, my fragile faith suffered yet another blow. My own sister, a friend I grew up adoring, died in mysterious circumstances. It did not help God's case that she died in church. This time, angry thoughts came back towards a God inconsistent with reason. What the hell, I thought. Does God really exist? If he is not sleeping on the job, is he at all troubled about what happens to us humans? In time, my anger was replaced by the need for answers. These questions troubled me so much that by the end of 2004, I had lost interest in my work and career. I needed answers. Picking up my family, I moved house and headed east, making Pumalanga my home for the next 15 years. While in Pumalanga, I read every book I could find on God logic, or what you call theology. It did not take me long to conclude that there is a creator, but he is not in the least what we imagined him to be. After careful investigation and study, 
I established that science had formulated a working theory that unveils the one true God, the creator of the universe. Even though science had formulated ideas that are capable of describing the smallest to the largest cosmic structures, science was none the wiser about what it had uncovered. Science proved dependable in explaining the forces at play at the origins of the universe, its structure, evolution, and ultimate destiny. But science remained aloof and was either indifferent or unconscious about any of its discoveries in this area. If religion were on talking terms with science, in the words of Carl Sagan, religions would say, The universe is much bigger than our prophet said, grander, more subtle, more elegant. God must be even greater than we dreamed. Instead, they said, no, 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 my God is a little God, I want him to stay that way, end quote. Upon further reflection on science, theology, and philosophy, I became convinced that the God of modern religion could not be real. That God does not exist because he does not correspond to known facts. Modern religion plays so fast and loose with the truth that it merely produces a more enlightened conviction of its own ignorance. How do you come on the divine ticket and spew out so much hatred against differently abled persons? A smoking gun could probably give a better account of itself on the harm against defenseless and vulnerable people. The modern church is all about self-propagation. As a species, we have become such a danger to ourselves. We are a very young species, having evolved a mere 3.2 million years ago from Lucy, that incomplete female skeleton found in Eastern Ethiopia in 1974. Yet we have so messed up the environment that by 2030, the planet may not be able to sustain life. The dinosaurs had 160 million years and they had become extinct probably because the planet became unsuitable to live in. The dinosaurs may be more proficient at life than we would ever be. Our future is in our hands now, and it depends on how well we understand the cosmos, our creator, and ourselves. In December 2018, I published my thoughts in a book entitled The Unknown God, His Image and Likeness. Since then, I have had more time to reflect on God and the cosmos. And before the end of 2019, I intend to release an updated edition of that same book with a visual graphic presentation of my thoughts. In the meantime, every week, starting with this podcast, I will be releasing free of charge portions of that book, The Unknown God. In the current series, however, I want to attempt to answer the following questions. One, who are we? Two, who or what is God? Three, what is the purpose of creation? And four, what is grace? That ability of God given to humans. Come join me. We shall approach these questions from three schools of thought, philosophy, science, and theology. These three disciplines match our own nature, mind, body, and spirit, respectively. They also parallel the ancient Hebrews' conception of a cosmos as consisting of the heavens, the earth, and the water under the earth, 
a three-story concept of the universe. We shall begin our search by appealing first to theology to disclose our nature. At the same time, we will knock on the doors of science to unwrap the human genome. We shall also reason with philosophy and try to find some common ground with the two other schools of thought. As you can imagine, this could take more than one book. But we are in no rush. The subject of our existence deserves that much attention. Thereafter, we shall tackle the big subject of God and the reason for our creation. We shall also explore the grace that power of God conferred on humans to accomplish the purpose that is set before us. Many religions believe that God is not open to understanding and explanation because God does not want his ways to be known, they say. But God disagrees. Here is what God has to say about this. And I quote, And I will give them a heart to know me as Jehovah, and will have them for my people, and they shall have me for their God, because they shall turn back to me with all their hearts. In addition, God has also accused us of stupidity, saying we have no interest in knowing him. He says, for the shepherds are stupid. They don't seek the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and their whole flock is scattered. End quote. Nevertheless, a daunting and lofty effort lies ahead for us. We have a lot going for us because today, almost every person on the planet, resources permitting, has sufficient access to records and information to make the mystery in the fields of science, theology, and philosophy rational. With nearly as much information as the President of the United States of America, no names please, at our fingertips we are sure of success in the near future. We shall knock hard on the doors of science, religion, philosophy, and ask them to reveal their secrets about our Creator and about us more clearly. Now more than ever, we remain confident that the problems and threats facing our generation are capable of clearer definition. There is only this requirement. Objective facts and rational understanding are important. We shall venture informed opinions where there are no facts available. However, like a good scientist, when we make our conclusions, we shall be sure to separate fact from speculation. The first question we must deal with is this, who are we? There are methods to knowing and explaining things. The one method is the synthesis principle. This principle teaches that each part only becomes fully clear when seen in relation to all the rest. We can know ourselves, this principle argues, if we have more information on our surroundings. A similar theory, the theory of relativity says, you can know what you are by comparing yourself to another thing that is not you. People can define themselves relative to each other and in relation to other things. We can know also who we are in relation to God because there is now enough information available on our Creator for us to infer a reasonable conclusion about our nature. In the first place, we know that all humans come from the lineage of Adam, a person created male and female, two witnesses in one body. 
In the first chapter of Genesis, Adam existed male and female, perfect and complete as the image and likeness of God. In that first chapter of Genesis, God created Adam male and female. It is important that we make sense of the mystery surrounding the ability of Eve, the woman, to bring a competent lawsuit in the cosmic cause. In terms of the laws of nature and the law of love, that is the royal law, showing prejudice is a violation of all the laws of nature and the mosaic covenant. Here is a brief account of Eve. Eve only makes an appearance in the second chapter of Genesis as a fit and corresponding mate to Adam. Before the creation of Eve, the Creator makes it clear that there would be created a perfect, comparable helper to Adam. Thus, when Eve existed, she is male and female, whole and complete, a perfect image and likeness of God. Adam's as well as Eve's twofold nature is a fact, restated formally and with gravity in the fifth chapter of Genesis, when the account of generations of Adam is given. This is what the Bible says. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and he blessed them, and called their name Adam. And in the day when they were created, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created." End quote. Adam represents all humanity, and wherever his name is used, it refers either as the name of that first man or of all the human race generally. Humanity's twofold nature comes from the Spirit of God which first resided in Adam. It became part of Eve who existed through the rib of Adam. This is how the Spirit of God came into Adam and passed on to Eve in what became the institution of marriage. This is how the Spirit of God came into Adam and was passed on to Eve in what became the institution of marriage. It also was the confirmation of humankind's twofold nature since Eve had resided in Adam and had come from him. In biology, the science that studies living organisms. In biology, the science that studies living organisms. Cells make a replica of themselves in a process by which a cell divides into two daughter cells. During this process, genetic stability remains a property of all known organisms. When the chromosomes of a cell double themselves in the process of cell division, the DNA molecule divide in such a way that the two chains of the double helix separate, and each of them serves as a template for the construction of a new complementary chain. This self-replication takes place with amazing fidelity. The frequency of copying mistakes or mutations is roughly 1 in 10 billion. 
Apart from what God had said, how do we confirm whether the twofold nature was in Adam in the first place? More importantly, how do we know that the twofold nature extends immortality to mortal men made from clay? Let us go back to the sixth day when God created humankind. Adam, whose name really means the red soil, was the first of his generation to come from the soil. Thereafter, Adam was the cause from where the animal organization in its diversified forms advanced. After taking dust from the ground, God had exhaled into Adam's nostrils a breath of life. After taking dust from the ground, God had exhaled into Adam's nostrils a breath of life, and the human became a living soul. In the Greek language, the expression breathe upon conveys the activity of the communication of the Holy Spirit, a process of connection allowing access to information between God and the human being. The recipient may then be able to enter or go into all truth, as Jesus had said, is a function of the Holy Spirit, and know the destiny of the world and humankind. When Jesus appeared to his disciples in private, he blew on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is a symbolical conveyance of the Spirit transmitting the divine nature of Jesus. The Spirit allows the recipient to enter into an inheritance. The act is like entering an inner sanctuary. Here, as Jesus blew the Spirit on the disciples, he restored their original nature, and like Adam, they became living souls. The creation of Eve could not have violated this process. For what? The bones in Ezekiel, upon receiving the same spirit, came to life, becoming a new creation from the twofold Lord God. The same expression, breathe upon, comes from a Hebrew word translating as to puff and signifies a twofold hope. To have a twofold hope is to have a hope for a heavenly return as the same kind of return that Adam experienced when he returned to his original nature, the image and likeness of God. It is a desire for the resurrection, the ultimate destiny of humankind and the world. Those who receive the Spirit become the original historians like Adam. Adam transmitted to Eve the image of God in which he was created. Eve also had become now the original historian, with a duty upon her to discuss matters from every side and to take trouble with detail. God, who had given power to humans by breathing into them, said he shall cause the downfall of any king or any nation that puts forth a hand to act otherwise and damage that house of God at Jerusalem. We're talking now about the human body. The warning comes from the interpretation of the root expression twofold hope and applies especially to all those intent on dehumanizing the woman by depriving the woman of her divinity. The inferiority of the woman inferred from biblical texts is a metaphorical expression referring to all humans. 
In the book of Jeremiah, God called on humanity to commit to memory, a map of the road to return to original nature, a type of rebirth. Setting guideposts, humans will remember the way back into the womb, a place of innocence and purity. God's promised restorations would ensure virgin Israel returns to her own town, a place of origin. The restoration will be so remarkable that it will be as if God will create a new thing upon earth. The expression, a woman will surround men, lends itself to various interpretations. All these point to the proverbial reference to human as women. The biblical woman is virgin Israel. A more plausible interpretation points to the evolution of the daughter of Zion, who would evolve into the heavenly Jerusalem, ruling the nations with God as the Lord of hosts. The example is Jesus, who took the same evolutionary path like all humanity, and he became the ruler of nations with God. In the context, the woman is the human, and the man, Jehovah, is the husband. All humans, therefore, have the title of daughter or woman, and humans are the equivalent of a village or small town as opposed to a large, densely populated municipality or mother city. To the ancient Hebrew, a daughter is one still covered in darkness, seeking God for deliverance. Deliverance is at the gate of what the Psalms of David calls the daughter of Zion. This represents a title far different from the heavenly Jerusalem. The Aramaic language used in the Bible designates to humans the same Hebrew word describing daughter. This title applies to all people who have the quality of being physical, consisting of matter as opposed to God and beings belonging to heaven. The term daughter and even woman in the case of Jerusalem is a reference to all mortal persons. In the book of Isaiah, the two terms have a particular application to the populations of earth, where the women of Zion, which is an indirect reference to all humans, are arrogant. These women walk with their noses in the air and making insidious glances. As a result, they only take short, little evolutionary steps. The two terms then, daughter and woman, apply to all humankind going through the process of evolution. Briefly, let us look at how the Bible defines the Creator's daughter, the human beings. We do this by finding out who Rebecca is. In the book of Genesis, when Rebecca's identity is under investigation, her answers reveals our very own nature. Through the name of Rebecca, we are able to learn that humans must busy themselves with the work of redeeming their souls. The redemption of their souls is a simple notion but a difficult task. It only requires that we return to our original nature. When we succeed, we become the daughter who holds a universal invitation to the great royal marriage feast, the so-called Lord's Supper. The royal marriage feast is the banquet where there is an exchange of formal communication of messages of great importance. At the banquet, our very own nature, the nature of the universe and its creator, become self-evident. All of life, then, is a preparation for this banquet, which is a momentous occasion of great significance. 
The banquet proposition represents the happiness of the coming messianic kingdom to the human individual, transforming the estranged human ego into a heavenly guest. At his own configuration, Jesus implored us to remember the occasion and to share it with others because this is how the kingdom of God comes to men. That is, to keep reuniting our two natures through forgiveness until the day the kingdom of God comes. He said, keep knocking. Bible scholars have said it was the point of transition between two economies and the two great festivals. The one about to close forever, the other to immediately open and run its majestic course until the earth is transferred into heaven. The economy that is doomed for permanent closure is the rule of the human ego. Being human, then, is a marker of transition, the beginning of the transitional passage. During this transitional period, we are not even women, but a daughter in the process of evolution. The preparation for the feast begins with the harvest and winnowing of grain, a metaphor for separating falsehoods from truth. In humans, this represents the rejection of the human ego, thus restoring the whole person to health. That is all that is required. That is all that holiness is about, nothing more. Rebecca's name, like all names in the Judeo-Christian religion, are definitive and convey a certain meaning. Her name is the Arab languages pointing to a looped cord for tying young animals. Her name is the Arab language pointing to a looped cord for tying young animals. This is a reference to our human nature, young, as untrained as an animal. Her name also means team or yoke, and in the language of Syria, it means threshing. Her name here signifies the daily routine of humankind, that is, the harvesting and winnowing of grain. Evoking here the Lord's Supper, the wine press, and the threshing floor, which all points to the salvation of human soul, where we seek our divine nature and we seek our deliverance. In the ancient world, threshing floors were used to separate edible grain from the external covering. Accomplished by at least two animals, teamed or yoked together, the beasts walked on the harvest. A level outdoor area, which is symbolic of external activity in the world. It was for threshing grain bundles, laid out and having the animals dragging heavy objects over them. Because the threshing floors were often located on the top of a rock, this symbolized the refinement of the human condition in the body personified by the stone or clay. In other examples, removing husks from corn is by grinding the harvest between the top and the lower stone, representative of spirit and body respectively. Threshing is part of the harvesting process, a process the Bible uses to describe the high point of dealing with the soul seeking salvation. When a soul can separate the wheat from the useless material consisting of seed coverings, it rejoices over a good harvest. In this sense, threshing usually exemplifies divine judgment, which is an attribute of God. 
when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he gathered with his 12 apostles. The 12 represent the 12 attributes of God. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the last valid Passover, having dismissed the traitorous Judas, who represented the human ego. The 12 disciples each constitute a distinguished character of God. With the 12 qualities, Jesus, who, being in the form of God at that time, thought it not robbery to be equal to God. He carried in him and in his being the power of God, the supreme being, the eternal and infinite spirit. He was the creator and the ruler of the universe. The act of separating falsehoods from truth was the centerpiece of the Lord's Supper. And we are to keep doing this in remembrance of our own function here on earth by consecrating bread and wine. The bread and wine are symbolic of our human and spirit nature respectively. They are, according to scripture, our Adam and Eve nature respectively. This is because Adam is red earth while Eve is spirit. This act of making one whole is the human being, the congregation of God, in whom is the assembly of the twelve attributes of God into one body. This is the unity of body and spirit, the bread and wine, into a congregation, a place made holy. Many people incorrectly think of a church as a building for religious services. This kind of church is a new invention by men, as there is no scriptural basis for it. Rebecca, then, is our example on how we view ourselves and how we answer the question, who are you? We know Rebecca as the wife of Isaac and mother of Jacob and Esau, the two twins resembling our binary nature, divine and human. When her identity was questioned, she presented the full credentials and introduced her family into the presence of her future in-laws. The senior servant of Abraham, his house officer, had taken an oath that in seeking a bride for Isaac, there would be two conditions he would meet. The first, he would not allow Isaac to marry someone from Canaan, a place also known as the Low Region. The Low Region, both in religion and of morals. The Canaanites were a wicked, cruel, and rebellious people cursed by God. The second condition was, Isaac will join in equal amounts to a wife by having a help meet for him, a partner who would be his equal in every sense of the word. It would have been unwise for Isaac to be attracted to Canaanite women or adopt their pagan religion. God had called for the complete destructions of the inhabitants of Canaan, warning Israel to let nothing that breathes remain alive and to make no compact with the Canaanites, nor show any mercy to them. Abraham, confident in the promise of God, took the responsibility of selecting a wife for Isaac before he died. He would organize his affairs and find a wife for his only son, Isaac. God would then fulfill his covenant promises to bless him with many descendants and give those descendants Canaan for their inheritance. Abraham knew the ritual had to be in harmony with his divine promise because it came with a posterity numerous and great. 
This is how the promise would pass on to the next generation. The ritual became a well-known practice. It dramatically represents the marriage of the bridegroom whose bride is the new Jerusalem. Abraham was careful to entrust this delicate mission to his servant. This servant, thought to be Eliezer, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, a good and faithful servant sent by the father of a great multitude, Abraham, to win a bride for the heavenly Isaac. This whole event is a picture of the heavenly father getting a bride for his son. Whose daughter are you? Please tell me whether there is room in your father's house for us to spend the night. In answer, Rebecca pronounced the attributes that make up the ideal human we ought to aspire to be. In addition to these attributes, Rebecca said she was in a position to provide both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Yet these attributes merely prepare a person for what to do next, observes Jean-Paul Sartre. There is no predetermined character which makes you who you are, he says. Who you are is a function of what you do. Rebecca said she was a daughter of Bethuel, whose name means the abode of God. That is, she is the result of God expanding his kingdom, finding a permanent place to dwell. Rebecca's introduction of herself and her family is informative. It is a description of who we are. Bethuel himself was Milka's son, a name that means Chaldean council. The Chaldeans was a race of people associated with the kingdom of Babylonia. The people were associated with the finest minds in the ancient world. They were skilled in interpretations and were children in whom there was no blemish, but were well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge. They had a good grasp and understanding of science, and they had an ability in them to stand before the Creator to be serving in the King's palace. By invoking such a prestigious family name with this illustrious ancestry, Rebecca presented a picture of a holy unified person rooted in wisdom. The ancient Hebrew also views the human as a twofold unit. A person is, according to this notion, the product of a union of a body and mind. These two join through a third aspect, spirit. It is the spirit which holds the body and mind together. The soul is the fourth aspect, and it is the sum of the three together, the mind, the body, and spirit. This is important to clarify since many people incorrectly believe that the body is a covering surrounding the soul. It is actually the other way around. The soul is the protective cover for the body, as shown in infographic one. In this form, the human resembles an atom, the mini-universe. Every atom is made of smaller bits of matter. The atom is threefold. It is the twofold nucleus and the electron. Here is how an atom is set up. Deep inside the atom, and hidden far beneath the electron cloud is the nucleus. The nucleus is generally made of positively charged protons and electrically neutral neutrons. We know 
that similar charges strongly repel each other. Electrons repel electrons. Protons repel protons. The nucleus, however, is able to stick together because there is a short-range nuclear force binding the protons and neutrons and thereby overcomes the electrical repulsion among the protons. When the scientists describe the nature and the strength of this force, which also holds the universe together, they say that if it falls on your hand, it will have the force of a dandelion. On the outside of the nucleus, there is an electron circulating around the nucleus. In humans, this same short-range nuclear force binding the protons and neutrons is the spirit of God in humans. The protons and neutrons are the male and female, the image and likeness of God in humans. According to this conception, the soul or electron constitutes the unity of a human person. The human atom, enclosed by an electron, has the same form and order as a galaxy, the biggest known structure in the universe. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is one of 100 billion galaxies and a billion trillion stars. Listen carefully. Our galaxy is one of 100 billion galaxies and a billion trillion stars. We share a number of attributes with the universe. Like people, stars, planets, and galaxies are born, live, and die. Evolution is a fact, not a theory. Here we see that there is an infinite hierarchy in the universe so that a human being, an electron, in our universe, compared side by side with a galaxy, should reveal itself as an entire closed universe. The human being, the whole person, which is the body, breath, and mind, is a mini galaxy. We humans have the galaxy in us. Adam changed states, evolving from ordinary clay to living clay, and finally to a living soul. When we compare the atom to an egg, for example, we see a similar pattern. A chicken egg, the thin-shelled reproductive body laid by a female bird, goes through the same process of evolution before producing a living soul. The egg consists of a shell, egg white and the yolk. An egg, like a human being, is also a living system, a replica of the cosmos. All three parts receive extremely high temperatures as the hen gathers her eggs under her wings. It takes seven days to heat each of the three parts of an egg to perfection. 21 days are required for a chick to emerge from the threefold egg. The imagined chick coming into existence is the living soul, being the fourth part of a threefold egg. For a different understanding of all living systems, let us now turn to chemistry. Chemistry is a branch of science that studies living systems, their composition, the composition of substances, their properties and reaction. 
Scientists have observed in chemistry that all of life's living systems maintain a state of existence requiring the continuous conversion of different forms of energy. They have described the tendency of nature to self-correct and return to order in two theories that are important. The first is the theory of self-creation or self-organization and the other is the theory of dissipative structures. If a living system had to behave the same as humans, the system would be unviable because a dysfunction would change the integrity of the system and it will die. To prevent this, all living systems maintain a continuous flow of energy to restore structures as fast as they are decaying. On a related matter, allow me to express my utter despair at the continued dumbing down of education, particularly in South Africa. This is of major concern as it works against the cosmic agenda. Some souls are unable to develop and evolve in the same way as those souls that are in developed countries would evolve. Every atom must fulfill its destiny through growth. Proper education, otherwise known as the bread of life in scripture, allows persons to go through a process of evolution through choosing, experiencing, judgment, and then restart the process by choosing again. That is the process of evolution. Lack of proper instruction deprives many people the ability to get through normal evolution. As a result, many souls remain trapped at the same station for billions of years, literally. 24 courses for priests, and we are all priests of the Most High, that have been set by King David are compulsory for everyone. Causeless delays result in the overpopulation we see now on our planet today. It threatens the survival of our species and the planet. In this context, the apartheid government and the African National Congress, the ANC government, are in willful abandonment of duty as part of the governing order of the cosmos. In this context, the apartheid government and the African National Congress, the ANC, are in willful abandonment of duty as part of the governing order of the cosmos. Between them, there is culpability probably running into billions of people trapped in devolution, the opposite of evolution. The ANC has had close to three decades to improve the standard of education, but keeps dropping the standards. They have lost the moral ground against apartheid, which had introduced the policy of Bantu education to buttress white privilege. On the 1st of October, I received the following text message which I released unedited from a colleague and friend I have known for three decades. Allow me to deviate and you judge for yourself. I quote, I have read quite a few comments to the effect that the ANC's intention to have grade 9 as an exit level is an indication that it prefers an illiterate electorate. I can't argue against that. I am convinced that the ANC prefers an uninformed electorate. I think it also prefers an electorate steeped in poverty 
so that voters depend on social grants which can be manipulated in order to produce certain voting patterns. But regarding grade 9 becoming an exit point in the education system, I want to put on the table another possibility as well. I don't know how true this is, but around 1999, I did research on the implementation of socio-economic rights in SA. Part of the literature I consulted suggested that during the Kempton Park negotiations, the SA Law Commission put draft legislation on the table for consideration in drawing up the constitution. One of the draft clauses provided for free and compulsory education. The literature suggested that the ANC opposed the part about free, but endorsed the part about compulsory. Have you ever wondered why in South Africa we have compulsory education up to age 15 or grade 9? Whichever happens first, but that education is not free? Now I guess we're all familiar with the perennial strikes at our universities around the issue of user fees. I guess we are all familiar with hashtag fees must fall. In the twilight of his presidential term, Zuma promised South Africans free tertiary education. He was fully aware of how his party had brought South Africa PTY Limited to the brink of bankruptcy. He was aware that the ANC would never be able to deliver on that promise. The university strikes were evidence enough that the existing NASFAS was already inadequate to meet the demand. But of course he was going to preside over the non-implementation of the promise that he made. But still, the problem must be addressed. It seems to me that Angie's plan is geared at addressing the problem. If South Africa flushes out of the education system millions of learners at the point of grade 9, there will be that much less learners to worry about at university level. What are your thoughts? Mandla Seloan, 1 October 2019. The poor education would affect countless generations long after this crop of leadership is forgotten. Liberation movements, especially in Africa, have shown a lack of nobility in character, quality and purpose. They have become an extension of the curse of colonialism. But I digress. Unlike human beings, a natural system is a reciprocal relationship to all objects, individuals and groups in the entire system. The system, in order to stay alive, makes sure to remain connected to the entire environment because it survives on the continual flows of matter and energy coming from the same system. Continuously repairing and perpetuating itself, the living system necessarily operates far from equilibrium, where new structures and new forms of order may spontaneously emerge, thus leading to development and evolution. Let's turn our attention on probably the most basic and fundamental definition of who we are. This definition applies to the cosmos, the creator, and to us. It is a definition of the ark, and it has three defining characteristics. Box, order, and light. A few general remarks, and then the essence. For the ancient Hebrew, a human is an ark and a place of order. It is similar to the Ark of Noah and to Moses the man. The human Ark has the same patterns of self-generating networks seen by science as a defining characteristic of life. Moses was born at a time when the ruling pharaoh of Egypt, 
had ordered the death of all male infants born to Hebrew women. When his mother was no longer able to hide him, she put Moses in a little vessel called the Ark and set it among the reeds along the edge of the Nile River. She hoped a sympathetic woman would discover and rescue the infant. Indeed, that happened. The Ark holding the body of Moses is a representation of the human body. The Hebrew word for Ark is similar to the name of Aaron, the brother and companion of Moses in the project against the enslavement of the children of Israel in Egypt. The defining characteristic of life also finds expression through the nature of the Ark of Noah. Noah received deliverance from the floods because he maintained the natural order of things. God had asked him to observe the natural order of things by making sure that he brings into the ark two of every sort of living thing of all flesh and to keep them alive with him. God was clear, bring with you and keep alive two of every sort of living thing of all flesh, male and female. Noah maintained the pattern of self-generating networks and therefore survived the floods. Our body is not only an ark, it is a, a reflection of the planet itself. The body, like the planet, is covered by 70% water, with the rest being dust or earth. While Noah might have a literal flood, we are drowning in misery. The ark describes any box used to store items and to keep them in order. The definition includes the gathering of any objects kept in a box or place or any other container for maintaining order. Such boxes include a stall for confining livestock, a portable enclosure or basket in which babies play, and a correctional facility for those convicted of crime. The notion of a box includes the entire cosmos. Cosmos is a Greek word for the order of the universe. From the smallest to the largest structures, there is order in the universe. Order is the opposite of chaos. When science studied the galaxies, they saw a pattern of universal order and beauty. But their studies also revealed chaotic violence on a scale not imagined even in a dream. Science found it remarkable that a universal order with such violence that destroys galaxies, stars, and worlds even permits life. They reached the conclusion that the universe is neither benign nor hostile. It is, according to them, merely indifferent to the concerns of such puny creatures as we. This is according to Carl Sagan. Any box-shaped object like the ark or the cosmos patterns and is the imitation of the order God gave to Moses and later to David. Light is a distinguishing feature of the ark. The cosmos and God relates to life and happiness. Humans must be an example of that order, taking after God and the cosmos good example of light and order. Humans must be an example of order, taking after God and the cosmos as good examples of light and order. Other than humans, 
every organism in nature has maintained the significance and order given to it at creation. This order is lacking in human beings because of the division between body, breath, and mind. This is what scripture calls spiritual death, evidenced by the domination of the ego mind over spirit and the suppression of one of our masculine or feminine natures. St. Paul, writing in Corinth, said, May he, the God of peace, sanctify you to perfection, and your spirits and souls and bodies be kept faultlessly safe and sound at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses also cautioned about the neglect of our other nature, saying this, results in spiritual death. He said, And he that smiteth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. When Adam, the person made from clay, received the breath of life exhaled into his nostrils, he became a living soul. In humans, the upper body and the lower body also constitute our dual nature. Even before Adam received the breath of life, he existed in bodily form and was twofold. The book of Genesis traces the line of the promised Messiah as being in a direct line of the ancestry stretching from Adam and Eve. That line of ancestry ends with the anointed one, Christ, who is our potential nature in the book of Matthew. Christ, as the expected savior, is the anointed one who is above mere humans. Humankind, therefore, can evolve from Adam or Eve to the Christ person. Note that I said the Christ. This is a title that describes any person who regenerates himself or herself to the level of Jesus Christ. It is by intention that the line of the ancestry of the Messiah began with Adam and Eve to reach the highest point in the Messiah. The Messiah's line of ancestry brings together over time, literally and figuratively, Adam and Eve joining two witnesses to make up the Messiah. God's intention was to dwell among his people. Moses had instruction for an exact and detailed pattern for building the Lord's tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be a palace, a royal residence of the king of Israel. The tabernacle is also the human body, a temporary place where God will establish a base from which to extend his kingdom. The human body will be the soul in which God was to dwell among his people. In that place, God will receive formal messages and prayers as one who has the power and the right to give orders and make decisions regarding all these matters that affect humans. The human body will be a house of prayer and a petition for the people. In this human tabernacle, God would give his responses to prayers. The human body was to be a place of worship, that is, a place where his people would evaluate the worth or substance of God. At that place, God was to record all knowledge about him, knowledge of all the amazing acts and events associated with his character. The sum of his qualities would allow humans to form an estimate of the value of God. From this tabernacle, the human body, God has preserved to be cherished all the sacred secrets that are beyond human comprehension. 
This is a sanctuary available to each person from qualities inherent in everyone and are a natural endowment from God. God gave Moses and later David the pattern for the successful construction of this tabernacle. The two, David and Moses, received specific instructions concerning the tabernacle and the system of religious beliefs and rituals concerning that sanctuary. They are stated here simply as the act of acknowledging our twofold nature and recognizing that holiness in others. The African custom Ubuntu is a way of life that meets all the requirements of natural law. Every individual acknowledges the human dignity of another, seeing them as complete in the practice of Ubuntu. It is characteristic in the classical greeting Sanibona. Loosely translated, the greeting means, the God in me sees the God in you. We affirm our wholeness, we affirm our inner wholeness, that is, we recognize the equality between the inner Adam and Eve by extending to others on the outside the same equal status we hold about ourselves. There is no obligation to build a sanctuary. It remains an open invitation to people to take up or reject the offer. We are, in effect, individual parts of the sanctuary built so that God may dwell and associate his presence and power with human beings. The sanctuary is to accommodate God's presence in humans. We are a way for God to extend his power and in that way, a way for God to know himself. God accepts contributions only from those whose hearts are willing to give. The association of obedience, commands and rules with the conception of hellfires is tired and manipulative. A human sanctuary freely constructed and meeting the specifications of Moses goes by the name, the name of God, a title we may perceive to be emblazoned around it or around a human. It is a place where an individual speaks with God face to face as one speaks to a friend. In the tabernacle, there will be the Ark of the Testimony where, written by God, the power of God is made clear on two stone tablets. Each of the two stone tablets contain five of the Ten Commandments. One of the stones will have written on it the five laws concerning God. The other stone would also have five laws concerning humankind. Eve, with the two witnesses in one body, is a symbol of the five stones concerning God. Eve's name means explain or make known an interpretation of a riddle. Riddles are difficult questions decided beyond dispute only by at least two or more people gathered together. In biblical times, the Queen of Sheba portrayed the role of Eve. She posed difficult questions to test Solomon's reputation for wisdom. People should avoid being wise in their own understanding and conceit, but should have their wisdom tested by how they deal with others. The Bible's usage of riddles speak of the riddle of life, death, and redemption. Riddles, therefore, are an indirect revelation ordinarily given by the Lord instead of the face-to-face -face meetings of old with Moses. Every living being has a male and female aspect inseparably connected to them naturally, just as the quality of oppositeness defines polarity. This twofold nature 
is the wisdom of God, his agency, and chief architect, and it is responsible for all the wonders and miracles attributed to God. Adam, with two witnesses in one body, is symbolic of the five concerning humankind. Adam and Eve are the centerpiece of the creation story, and their presence reveals the deepest significance of the ark. It is in bringing our inner Eve, placing them on the same level as the inner Adam, that we are able to understand the reason for life, death, and redemption. The two are angels that guard the holiness of God. Neither of them may approach the presence of God, nor the tree of life stationed in the midst of the garden alone. The two together guard the presence of God, making sure that only when they return together can they gain entry into God's presence, which is a state of happiness. Adam and Eve together belong to a class of angels that are one whole in appearance, a whole made of complicated but related parts. Their main task is to guard the way to God, ready to cut down to shreds anyone who tries to pass around the tree of life to try to access God in the state of happiness. The two, Adam and Eve, can assemble and dismantle the tabernacle only together while on their journey on earth, just as God does himself. It is for this reason that we have the ark called the ark of testimony, because as written in God's law, only the testimony of two human beings, whether male or female, only that testimony is true. The ark was a box built as if it had four walking feet. The feet bent as if for walking. Adam and Eve constitute the ark of the testimony with four feet, two on either side. The ark, covered with gold, has made it possible to carry the two tablets of stone as one body, Adam Eve. I repeat, the ark, covered with gold, has made it possible to carry the two tablets of stone as one body, Adam Eve, not Adam and Eve. Together they have the evidence and are a proof of life. Together they have evidence and are proof of life. These two stones contain the commandments or written instructions on the papers of life. Jesus the man achieved this by changing his natural form from a natural person to a spiritual state, the Christ. The last, the last Supper was a momentous occasion. The Last Supper was a momentous occasion marking the change for Jesus from a mere human to a spiritual being. The banquet is the uniting, the joining or coupling together of the internal man and woman that characterize human nature. His death on the cross correctly denotes a transition from mortal to immortality. There is no death because death, including physical death, is a rite of passage when an individual changes from one state to the next. From this divine marriage of Adam and Eve arises a powerful individual, as noted by Shakespeare's King Richard II. My loving Lord, I say goodbye to you and to my noble cousin, Lord Omerl. I may die, but I am not sick. No, I am young, vigorous, and still cheerfully drawing breath. And just as I leave the best for last at the dinner table, so do I turn to you, Father, whose youthful spirit lives on in me. 
and gives me strength in the fight to come. With your blessings on my lance, may it defeat Mowbray and add new glory to the name of John of Gaunt by the deeds of his son. The Last Supper marked the attainment of the highest bond of altitude reached by a heavenly body in the process changing its state from natural to a spiritual being. It brings the observance of the Passover feast to its expected climactic end. It is the attainment or arrival at the highest pitch of glory and power available to human forms. What is the Last Supper? It is an elaborate meal, often called a feast, where food and drink is served both as nourishment and as ways of saying something to each other. It is the marriage of the inner Adam and Eve, a marriage of heaven and earth. In the next podcast, we shall explore the three aspects of the act to gain a better understanding of who we are.